topic. So before that, uh, I would like to invite a few to focus our attentions on our Lord Jesus Christ and come before him in prayer. Father God, we thank you once again for gathering us in this place, and we thank you for opportunities to learn, opportunities to listen from different pastors, from different, different speakers, so Lord. And we pray, Lord, that as we come today, Lord, as we are going to listen to Pentecostalism, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, our minds, and our hearts, and we pray that our, uh, both the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts today may be pleasing to you. And Lord, today, teach us how to um, be zealous for you, but also to be zealous and knowledgeable about our zeal, to serve you wholeheartedly, to serve you with all our, uh, to love you with all our strength, our might, but also, Lord, to love to know about you, to really know personally, Lord, uh, you. And because of that, Lord, we come today be seeking you to bless us, to teach us through our friend, uh, Reverend Mitchell Moore. We thank you and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, welcome once again to the gathering. Um, I will just uh, introduce the gathering briefly to those of you who have come for the first time. Uh, the gathering is uh, right now an informal group started uh, by a few guys from the Reformed tradition. We basically do three things, um, urban, urban life and worldview, where we talk about uh, the influence of the Christian faith to our everyday life, uh, our professions, uh, our business, uh, the culture in general. And also uh, the, second th uh, the second thing is theology and the local church. We seek to be able to talk about theology, talk about um, knowledge, doctrines with local churches and to develop their ability to know God um, through, through good doctrine. And thirdly, seminary in the academy, this one, um, because we have a few guys who have backgrounds in seminary, and so we seek also to come here to talk to uh, some of the churches, see how to engage them, and how to develop the local cap capabilities um, in theology. So those are the things that we are trying to do. Today is our last session for the year, all right, and uh, we have one of the most, I think, interesting topics, that is the Pentecostal Church, the history of it, and how we respond to it, how we, we engage with the Pentecostal uh, churches. And to, for that, we have today Reverend Mitchell Moore. He is the pastor of uh, Presbyterian Reform Evangelical of Indonesia. He's also the chaplain and the vice president of student development in Upeha, Unif University of Plita Harapan. And uh, he's been here in Indonesia for three years, so he knows the culture, he knows uh, the local context. And um, this is the topic that's going to talk, to talk about, so I think without further ado, uh, we would invite Reverend Mitchell Moore to speak to us today. Thanks. Thank All right, thank you. I'm glad to finally make it down to the gathering. I've been hearing about it for a couple of years um, in my Saturdays when y'all meet or when you had your conference last year, seemed to uh, get full. So uh, I'm excited to be here. And um, particularly uh, excited about this topic. Gray asked me to do this after we had a cup of coffee and talked about a certain aspect uh, that we'll look at towards the uh, end of the talk. Um, I, there's a document that all of y'all should have access to. Many of you have it in your lap. Uh, most of the slides uh, are on, there's, on that document. There's opportunity for you to take notes. Um, if you want, I'll be skipping a lot of it, uh, and there's a lot of the references here. You need to know I am Presbyterian. I am Reformed. Um, I am not Pentecostal. 
Uh, but I've been reading and studying for uh, several months. Uh, I've really enjoyed actually preparing uh, for this. Uh, it's been good for my soul. Um, and so all the resources I've used are available. Uh, I don't think I printed my resource slide. It's not complete, um, but there's a, I have tons of resources. So if you want anything, you can email me later uh, or whatever. Uh, I can get you those resources. Um, so it's all from other places. All right, so footnote number one. Uh, none of this is original. You know what the definition of originality is? It's forgetting where you got it from. So uh, anyway, uh, I think this is an important topic for churches to understand. Um, temptation for Reformed Christians is to kind of have a Trump conversation, just to get angry and to yell uh, and to create a huge division uh, where there can't be a graceful and whimsical dialogue about the truth um, and about Christ himself. And so hopefully we'll avoid uh, personal attacks and we'll look at truth and look at history and this can be a catalyst for that, but the context that we're in uh, really demands that we have an understanding for this. Uh, we're known internationally as a country for uh, Pentecostal churches. Um, most recently, the plane crash that was in Surabaya, uh, I think that you remember that it was last Christmas. It's been almost a year. But there was a family of 10 people that missed that flight, and CNN did an interview with them. Why would you miss the flight? It was email, this, that, and they uh, got the times messed up. And one of them said, you know, it's because I'm a Christian, uh, and we use this holy oil, and we put the holy oil on everything to protect us and keep us safe. Um, and internationally, the Tiberius Church of Indonesia, one of our largest churches, uh, was on the stage. Um, it's a church that, a Pentecostal church that uses holy oil um, and describes many of the powers uh, and the work of Christ to the oil itself. Um, so we need to understand not only the history of that, but how can we uh, engage uh, the Pentecostals in our country in a healthy way. Uh, more recent than that was the pastor in Bandung that passed away. His church has 20,000 people, um, and they prayed for days and days for him to be resurrected, um, and it never happened. And we think that that's um, very entertaining, but it's actually very sad. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of people that are um, honestly wanting to know uh, more about the truth in Christ, and I believe that there may be a place for a righteous Trump-like anger, I guess, no dialogue with leaders, uh, but with people who go to these churches, we need to be very graceful, very whimsical, very loving, um, and very honoring. Uh, so we're going to look uh, at Pentecostalism. Uh, quickly, let me tell you a little bit about my family. I have four kids. We've lived here, uh, you know, just over two years, about three years. Um, this is my oldest daughter, Lauren, Cora, Tucker, and Ben. Uh, when we were in Taraja, it's uh, a great picture. Um, my wife, Lisa, and I have been married almost 17 years. Um, and we, uh, I've been a pastor at Karawachi Presbyterian Church now for, I don't know, uh, just we've been, we're about almost two years old as a church. So since it started, and um, we've got a, a couple other things going on, and it's just a, a joy to be a part of. Uh, the, the charismatic movement, the Pentecostal movement, uh, globally is the fastest growing Christian movement in the world. Um, oh, in, in Latin America and Africa, and particularly in Asia, uh, currently there's over 500 million uh, Pentecostals slash charismatics in the world. Uh, there are 2 billion Christians, people who would call themselves Christians. So you're looking at one quarter of the quote-unquote Christian population. Um, and honestly, growing up, most of my education and information about the Pentecostal Church and the charismatic movement came from uh, TBN, uh, watching Christian uh, television. 
uh, and then just kind of weird experiences. I remember the first time I uh, encountered a, a woman who uh, had prayed for me before I was speaking. Uh, she came up and she grabbed my cheeks with her hands and she said, I was praying for you and the Lord told me he would loosen your tongue. And I looked at her and I didn't say anything but thank you, but my mind was going, what does that mean? Loosen my tongue. I just had, started panicking. My tongue's a muscle. If, if it's loose and I get up there, and I'm like, I'm going to look like a fool, right? <laughs> I had no idea what it meant. And uh, I think that um, was a good window into just my lack of understanding about the charismatic church, the Pentecostal church uh, in general. Uh, but it is something that we must um, uh, pay attention to and understand as Reformed Christians. There's a lot of implications for it. So I'm going to run through, oh man, the history of the Pentecostal church. Um, and the common starting point for this, because the history is important to understand uh, for the current engagement, right? So most people in their history are going to go back to 1901, a place, uh, Topeka, Kansas. It's barely on a map, but there was this guy named Charles F. Uh, Parham. Uh, who worked at a Bible college. He had tried to have a healing home that was unsuccessful. And um, is this all right? We were losing power. Uh, the healing home that was unsuccessful, he came back, and uh, he uh, was telling his students and leading his students and praying for the Holy Spirit that they would uh, be able to uh, speak in tongues like Acts 2. And a woman named Agnes Osmond, on the first day of the first year, uh, of uh, 1900s, 1901, she spoke in tongues. Uh, and this has been called by um, Pentecostal historians the touch that was felt around the world, uh, that, it, that it began the movement, the Pentecostal movement uh, of the 20th century. So what you're looking at is just over 100 years, 116 years, um, over 500 million Pentecostals and Charismatics uh, have uh, appeared. Uh, this is a massive um, movement, and it, it began to set fire quickly. Uh, it went from 1901 to 1906, I'm sorry, I'm just going to run through these, uh, out to California. Uh, there was a guy named William Joseph Seymour, and he actually went to Houston uh, to hear Charles Parham talk, and he was an African-American. It's a very interesting story, uh, and this guy, Seymour, sat in another room and heard Parham talk about what had happened in Topeka, Kansas. And he decided that he was going to uh, try to lead a revival where this happened, uh, and it did. And in the Sousa Street mission, um, there was a revival. Uh, there were people speaking in tongues. Um, people originally thought that they were tongues from around the world, all these different languages, but it turned out that they weren't any languages at all. It was just a lot of babble that nobody understood, um, but it was a, a very, uh, very emotional, uh, very powerful, uh, a very electric setting uh, where for days and days and days uh, people uh, were praising God. There was no uh, choir robes. There were uh, no order. There was um, no one called on. It was very Quakerish in the sense that if people had a word to speak, they spoke. And the story about Seymour, you can read in a quote on the next page, um, was that he would sit most of the time behind the pulpit with a shoebox on his head. Uh, and he would occasionally get up and just command people to pray for the baptism of the Spirit. 
uh, to pray that they would speak in tongues, uh, to pray that they would speak the language of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, or have uh, divine healing. So he was very um, influential in uh, getting the energy, stoking the embers of the Azusa Street Revival. Quickly, uh, Pentecostalism began to spread. Um, There was this guy... Uh, named T.B. Barrett, who was there. He was a, actually a Norwegian Methodist pastor who was there. He took Pentecostalism over to Europe uh, rather quickly. Um, and uh, we began to see uh, a, a period of what we would call ostracism, right? So a lot of these uh, folks that had been baptized with the Holy Spirit and were speaking in tongues and having miracles and healings all over the place, um, allegedly, uh, a lot of the mainline churches uh, were looking down on them. They were judging them. They were uh, keeping them on the fringe and the margins uh, until uh, the 1960s. Uh, in the 1960s, uh, there was an Episcopal guy by the name of Dennis Bennett. He announced uh, Episcopalian Church as a mainline church. Um, we don't have time to go into the history of that. But he had announced that he himself had spoken in tongues. Uh, He was in Van Nuys, California. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but that's how I pronounce it. Uh, And he began to teach that all people needed to pray, all Christians needed to pray for all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, that all of them were operative for the church, and that all Christians needed to pursue uh, miraculous gifts um, and needed to pursue uh, baptism with the Holy Spirit uh, for effective ministry. And he began to explicitly teach that that was the goal of the Christian life. Not sanctification, not Christ-likeness, but uh, this divine experience of a second baptism that manifests itself in these signs and wonders uh, in your personal life. This is a really significant moment because all of a sudden in the history of Pentecostalism, uh, they move from being ostracized to what's called the Neo-Pentecostal movement. It was a movement within mainline churches. And you had Baptists, you had Episcopals, uh, you had Presbyterians, um, you had all, uh, all kinds of denominations who were beginning to have what they called renewal movements. Okay? Now, from a personal standpoint, I need to say that I'm actually grateful for this. Uh, I have a video of, of this being a little crazy. Uh, but we don't have time to show it, and I don't want to show it, um, that, because a lot of it was uh, uh, filled with uncontrollable laughter and um, all kinds of stuff that's very foreign for us in a worship service, uh, very foreign in worship services in general. Um, but personally, my stepfather, who married my mom uh, when I was 12 years old, uh, he was in an old Episcopal church that was dying. And a renewal movement from the Neo-Pentecostals came to his Episcopal church. His church was so dead uh, that literally his pastor ran off with his first wife. It was completely uh, dead, right? And he still kept going there uh, because he was drawn to the church. But one of these Neo-Pentecostal movements came to his church, uh, and his faith really took off. And uh, my my family was different because of uh, his uh, I think he came to know Christ in it and through it, uh, and he really had a hunger for the Word of God and became a, a man of God that was a really leader uh, in my life and in many people's lives before we passed away. Uh, so the Neo-Pentecostal movement, um, uh, working within denominations, actually had, uh, uh, and still in some senses, had some effect in these dead churches in, in bringing life uh, and, and bringing a, a sense of revival 
and I testify to that personally. Um, there was more of a sense of respect that came uh, to the Pentecostal church through this, um, but this is where you begin to have the term charismatic uh, that was attached to this movement, right? The neo-Pentecostal movement, as it spread to a bunch of different churches, rather than having um, the name Pentecostal, uh, the uh, Pentecostal denominations began to form early in the 1900s, 1914, is when the Assemblies of God formed. They didn't want to have association with another denomination, so they started using the word charismatic, which is just a reference to the gifts of the Holy Spirit that, are, uh, that were reviving uh, their churches at the time. Uh, now, what was hugely important, I'm sorry, I'm running through these, you have your notes, um, for the Charismatics uh, was, uh, sorry, you're already seeing that I've got Benny Hinn there. Uh, well, I'll just go to the third wave. If you're a Benny Hinn fan, I might hurt your feelings here in a second. Uh, but what was hugely important for the Charismatics, and you need to understand this before we get into the roots of the history of the Pentecostal church, um, is uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, the Charismatics uh, were the manifestation of the Pentecostals in these mainline denominations, and it was a second work of grace. It was a post-conversion uh, experience. Uh, it was an acknowledgement that salvation itself wasn't enough for a full, true Christian life. It was marked with tongues, uh, speaking in an unknown language. It had uh, other markings of um, special gift manifestations. These would be alleged healings and miracles that happened. Uh, and there was really a, a strong desire, actually, to serve Jesus uh, in many of these cases. Um, there were many uh, strange things that went with these, uh, this second baptism, not only uh, obscene laughter, uh, just breaking out everywhere, but also slaying in the spirit. Uh, there's testimonies of levitating. I don't know when the last time that happened, uh, here uh, at this church and Covenant City Church. I don't know if Tazar's levitated yet, um, but there were <laughs> testimonies of levitating, filing of teeth, uh, which is, you know, just uh, seizures and, and, and jerking, uh, total loss of control, in some cases, unconsciousness, uh, and inability to stop jumping. Um, these are all testimonies of, of what people experienced when these charismatic or neo-Pentecostal revivals would happen. Lots of prophesying, uh, lots of telling of the future, words of knowledge, and areas of discernment. Uh, so as the Pentecostal and charismatic movement was, the neo-Pentecostal movement was becoming more and more accepted within the mainline denominations, uh, you have coming on the scene what is called the third wave. Uh, the third wave uh, of the movement uh, was the signs and wonders movement. And this is something that we really see the effects of in our country uh, for many reasons. Um, one of which is, is this guy right here, uh, Benny Hinn. But in 1983, uh, a guy named Peter Wagner began uh, uh, to really push this third wave. It was associated with a lot of uh, a lot of Pentecostals who were saying, you know what, we're losing the fire, we're losing the spirit, we've got to drum it up more. And so they started highlighting healings and highlighting miracles more and more. Uh, this is the birth of, you, you've heard the name it and claim it, right, movement. You know, the big book, uh, Prayer of Asses, I mean the Prayer of Jabez, right. Uh, Asses, give me this, Asses, give me that, that's what I call it. Um, the Kingdom Now, uh, it's a very over-realized eschatology. Um, that you can have this, uh, this, this perfect um, kingdom now, 
that we really already uh, would be the not yet realization now. And then the apostolic movement. It's all, this is all a part of it. Uh, huge um, movement of the demon, uh, casting out demons of the, uh, they call it the demon, um, what is it? What do I have on there? The what? Yeah, the demon conquest, right? And actually, if you, if you know people from this third wave movement, I've had people, multiple people in my life, give me books on this is how you understand the Bible's teachings on, de- on demons, and this is how you then conquer them in the name of Jesus, right? So they're very strategic, very laid out. Um, and this is uh, the global movement that you see with guys like Benny Hinn came out of this, right? Benny Hinn has the international uh, work that he does. I'm not going to call it a ministry. Uh, he's effectively a con man that can't prove any of his miracles and won't be accountable for uh, the multiple millions of dollars that he takes in in any way, shape, or form. Um, but he is the fruit of the signs and wonders movement. And um, it really, ah, it was really birthed out of their desire to experience uh, the work of the Spirit on a deeper level. So, Pentecostalism uh, was birthed in 1901, uh, traditionally, uh, and quickly spread around the world and formed all kinds of different organizations, different denominations, very, very quickly, then made its way into mainline churches. Uh, but the main, main denominations are the holiest Pentecostals, the Assemblies of God, uh, the Apostolic Pentecostal Church, and Oneness Pentecostals. Now, with, there's still a growing movement uh, growing and maturing in a lot of ways. Uh, the oneness Pentecostals, the, the non-Trinitarian uh, Pentecostals, they're modalists. Uh, they don't believe that the Trinity uh, actually exists uh, eternally. That in the Old Testament, it was God the Father. In the New Testament, it was uh, God Jesus. And in the church time, it's a God the Holy Spirit. And it's the same God, one God, that puts on a different mask, right? Uh, this is a huge movement. There would be of the, this is amazing, of the over 560 million charismatics in the world right now, about 50 million of them would be oneness Pentecostals. I have a friend uh, in Nairobi, Kenya. I went to stay with him for a couple of weeks. Uh, he's a oneness Pentecostal and praying in tongues all the time. And he told me that, that I'm not a Christian uh, because I haven't spoken in tongues. He said, if you haven't been born again, you... You, you, if you're born again, you speak the heavenly language, and if you haven't been born again, you don't speak the heavenly language. Uh, and we had a very detailed theology of this, and, and I enjoyed talking with him and taking him to God's word and asking him to show me where this is, right? Where do you see this in the scripture? Um, and he couldn't do it. He could only point to his leader in rural Africa. I went to their church. I actually met with her. And she also told me that she thinks that I have enough faith and I'll one day be able to speak in tongues. And so she considered me saved, even though I hadn't had that experience yet. Uh, it's very interesting. But what you see when you push into this movement, whether it's the uh, oneness movement or these other movements, is a uh, very young and developing um, uh, uh, movement. And so I have a picture here of T.D. Jakes as an example. Uh, T.D. Jakes is a very influential, one is Pentecostal pastor from the United States, has a huge church, an empire of a church, right? Uh, but he was non-Trinitarian. And someone spoke to him about Scripture and the biblical teaching of the Trinity. And he said, uh, in an interview with Christianity Today, uh, he said that he now has repented of the heretical position that he became a Christian in, and now is a Trinitarian oneness Pentecostal. <laughs> so, but what you see is, this is that's a huge deal. 
uh, when a leader on that stage says that. But he says that his non-Trinitarian brothers and sisters, they don't believe in the Trinity, but they're brothers and sisters in Christ, they now treat him as a heretic because he believes in the Trinity, right? So it's, it's interesting when you look inside the movement. Uh, quick story, uh, one of the biggest oneness uh, Pentecostal uh, denominations in America is called the Kojic Church of God in Christ. Uh, used to be based in Memphis, Tennessee, where I was a pastor, okay? Um, and <laughs> I remember I was flying from Memphis to Atlanta for something, and uh, something happened with my flight. I got moved to another flight. And they didn't have room on that flight. They put me in first class just to get me there. And I was like, oh, that's great, you know. So this huge guy comes and sits beside me. And he just looks over at me. He says, this has been a long day. He says, I know God's got me sitting beside you for a reason. Who are you? And I said, well, that's, a, that's an interesting way to start a conversation, you know. And uh, I said, well, my name is Mitchell Moore. And who are you? He said, my name is Michael Williams. Turns out this guy had been in Memphis for a funeral for one of the head guides of the Kojic Baptist uh, Kojic. Uh, church, Church of God in Christ in Memphis. He was flying back uh, on his way to uh, uh, South Georgia, landing in Atlanta, going, going south. And he was a bishop. He was like the third guy in charge, second guy in charge. And so we start talking about how I don't speak in tongues and how I'm not a real Christian, even though I'm a Presbyterian pastor. Uh, and he said, look, i got to tell you something. I said, what's that? He said, we don't really believe that. And I said, then why is it in your official church documents. He said, because the people who founded our church, they believe it and we can't change it until they all die off. And I said, that's weird. You know, I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was like, but that's, I was sitting there and I tell that story, it's a true story. You can look up Bishop Michael Williams on the internet uh, and you'll see some pictures of him. Um, but this is an evolving and changing uh, movement. And they are a movement, and, and they're looking for substance. They're looking for structure. Uh, they're looking for order. They don't have it. And I actually think um, that it's, it's a dangerous time uh, to yoke yourself in any official way uh, if I'm a Presbyterian Reformed pastor with a charismatic movement. Um, there's a, there is a movement globally doing that. Uh, the, the Gospel Coalition has released several articles lately about Calvinists and Charismatics needing one another. Uh, and I would agree that there is need from one direction to the other, but not both ways. We don't need each other. Um, I think that there's a need for charismatics to uh, understand uh, the Reformed faith. So I agree with that, and I would love to have dialogue about it. There's also, you see in Christianity Today, if you read, um, there's lots of leaders that are uh, inviting a yoking between uh, charismatics and Reformed Christians. And um, I think it's dangerous for many ways at this point, uh, at this point in history. Uh, but that's a general overview of the first 115 years of uh, the Charismatic Church. Now, I want to talk about the roots of the church, because if you don't understand the roots of the church, then you're not going to understand um, where I'm going with this talk, all right? I I'll go ahead and confess. I originally thought that I had two hours, uh, and then I found out that I have one hour, uh, and so I'm way over-prepared for this. And so I'm just going to run through these uh, really, really quickly. Siri. Siri. <laughs> I thought you were saying Siri, Siri. You know, that's how we find our way around Jakarta. And, and Siri is a voice that speaks out of nowhere and is right sometimes. And so I thought that's actually kind of applicable. Uh, <laughs> sorry. I told myself I wasn't going to be dishonoring, so forgive me for that. Um, 
I want to work my way backwards. Uh, because the truth is, the Pentecostal movement didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of somewhere. Uh, there were things happening in history, and you need to know about them. Uh, the first was that in the United States, we're going to work our way backwards. Okay? We're going to go all the way back to the first century. Then we're going to come to reform, reformers. Then we're going to go to scripture. And then we're going to go to current engagement. We're going to do all that in 30 minutes. Are you ready? You buckled up? Yeah? You need water? It's over there. Bathroom is over there. You, you, you go to the bathroom. You come back. You might miss like 40 years or maybe four centuries. I don't know. <laughs> we're going to be going fast. Um, but there were national camp meetings all around uh, the United States. You've got to understand the Civil War was over in 1864, and it was a nation looking for healing. It was a nation wounded, uh, and the church churches were uh, longing to fill that gap. And so part of that was this um, national camp meeting association where uh, there was a high promotion of what they called Christian holiness. And we'll understand where that comes from in a second, uh, the holiness movement. Uh, it would realize that they, they were, uh, they said that more and more that uh, the holiness is going to come if you can have a Pentecostal experience. This is before Pentecost, right? And so in the uh, 1800s, uh, you had this, this holiness, holiness movement that was um, antagonized by revivalist preachers like this guy. I mean, have you seen someone this scary looking before? This is Charles Finney, uh, and during the Second Great Awakening, remember we're working our way backwards in history, he went around and he was a former Presbyterian pastor, but he boasted of the free will of sovereign man. And he, he said, you want to be holy? Then you choose to be holy, and you're holy. You want to be a Christian? Then do it. You have complete free will. You're completely sovereign, and so choose your salvation, and also uh, choose this holy life. And he used all kinds of tactics that were wild, that were dramatic, that were engaging. And when they had these big crowds gathered, wow, man, everybody loved watching. Everybody was entertained. Uh, but the holiness movement, the, the fire, the campfire things, or the revival fires that came, uh, and then the, uh, uh, Charles Finney and the Second Great Awakening really set the stage. Uh, a guy named Don Basham. Uh, well, no, we're not, we can read that later. All right, another part of this was the, the, the Keswick Higher Life Movement. Uh, you can read about that. It, it began in England. Um, and the point is that by the time uh, the Pentecost came, uh, the Pentecostal movement was birthed in 1901, there was actually uh, centuries of activity uh, that prepared the way. Uh, in the 1700s, it was John Wesley and his teaching uh, on holiness. Uh, in the 1800s, it was the holiness and revivalism that came. In the 1900s, the Pentecostals were birthed. But by the time you get down here to the 1860s and 70s, and you had uh, a real movement of Christians that were longing for two things. One, this instant holiness that had its roots in Methodism. Uh, but two, this experience and this desire with the Holy Spirit. All right, And this takes us back, and I will read this quote um, uh, to the beginning of the Pentecostal church. Uh, the unique features of Pentecostalism is a claim that speaking in tongues as at Pentecost is the initial evidence of the spiritual baptism. This distinguishes its uh, proponents as Pentecostal. It's not far amiss to say that the idea of combining tongues with the holiness idea of baptism uh, uh, of the Spirit was a catalyst that generated the Pentecostal movement. In the tongues, speaking old line Pentecostalism felt it had, this is important, an objective criteria. 
to remove the ambiguity of feeling and the subjective evidence of Wesley and his holiness followers, we'll read about that in a second, uh, had relied on to give assurance that they had received the second blessing or perfection experience uh, that they advocated. This objective criteria of personal experience replaced the word of God, the truth. The objective criteria of your experience, the objective criteria of your second baptism with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, having this experience. And this is, uh, leads to um, something that's really dangerous. Uh, Pentecostals call it um, dynamic inspiration. It's taking, a, trading a subjective salvation for a subjective or a continual revelation. So you want to know you're saved? Then you need to have a personal experience with the Holy Spirit. And what matters is, is that objective data. And it leads to a continuing revelation, a dynamic inspiration. Uh, this is Joyce Meyer, um, who is queen of this dynamic inspiration. Uh, Joyce Meyer teaches publicly, she says it, she's written it, that she says things that, oh, the Bible itself can't find a way to explain it. So you've got to listen to me. That's why you've got to get it by revelation. Dynamic inspiration. Scripture's not enough. It's me. Uh, there's no words to explain what I'm telling you. I've just got to trust God that he's putting it into your spirit like he's put it into mine. And she would go on to say at another time that before she gives this dynamic inspiration, this word of God, actually angels put the words in her ear so that she can put the word in your heart. You see, what happened within the Pentecostal movement that uh, really began with this uh, uh, 1700s Methodism from John Wesley that focused on this uh, personal holiness, this, this, uh, and there's all kinds of theological background to that, that moved into this, uh, the holiness movement and the revivalism of the 18th century, uh, 1800s and then became uh, the Pentecostal church, uh, was this loss of a standard of, of truth, a standard of, of God's revelation. Uh, and replaced with uh, our own uh, objective experience. So I want to ask you, and we'll, we'll talk, uh, I'm going to read you some quotes here in a second, but I want to ask you what the mark is of the Pentecostal church. Now, a lot of people will say the mark of the Pentecostal church is an encounter with the Holy Spirit. Uh, it, is the, uh, it is the speaking in tongues. It is the uh, prophecies, the signs and wonders that go with it. But I'm going to advocate that the mark of the 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 Pentecostal church is a personal experience. It's actual, actually that objective data that comes from your feeling, uh, the choice of your salvation, and then the personal experience with uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, usually that's marked with tongues and other objective data. Uh, and that's, you see a quote from the Foundations of, of Pentecostal Theology that actually says, that's a book, Foundations of Pentecostal Theology, um, that actually says that you have to have that experience. But the mark of the church is that you have this personal experience with a personal God that still speaks to you, uh, that's still uh, dynamically revealing himself, uh, that gives personal signs and personal wonders. Uh, and that Holy Spirit then 
uh, and I skipped a quote, is a gentleman that when you want to have these things, when the stage is set, that you can experience them. And that's what my friend Morris told me in Africa. And his church teaches that you want to have this experience with the Holy Spirit. God wants you to have it. You've just got to want it. You've got to follow the steps to get it, right? You've got to do this so that you can experience that. Um, it's a very self-centered uh, movement, centered on the individual. Um, I want to take questions at this point, but I'm going to ask you to hold your questions because we've got a few more centuries to cover. All right, it's, uh, and we're making some good time here now. So we've got to ask ourselves as Reformed Christians, all this we look at, and I'm sorry I went through it really quickly. You can read the notes later. Um, but it, how do we think about it as Reformed Christians? Let me give you a quote from uh, a charismatic. Charismatic uh, writer, a guy named Vincent Sinan, who's written a lot. And this, uh, this comes from a book called The Holy Pentecostal Movement in the United States. Uh, he says that although the Pentecostal movement began in the United States, its theological and intellectual origins were British. The basic premise of the movement's theology were constructed by John Wesley in the 18th century, that's the 1700s. As a product of Methodism, the Holiness Pentecostal movement traces its lineage through Wesley's, Wesley's to Anglicanism and from thence to the Roman Catholicism. Uh, the, this theological heritage places the Pentecostals outside the Calvinistic and Reformed tradition. The basic Pentecostal theological position might be described as Arminian, perfectionistic, premillennial, and charismatic. Um, so from uh, the mouth of a Pentecostal, uh, the family tree of their faith does not run through uh, the Reform Reformation. It runs outside of the Reformation uh, to the Catholic Church. And we have to ask ourselves, um, how then should we engage it? And do we agree with it? Is it a completely other history? Is it a completely other movement of God? Uh, how do we think about it? So let's look a little bit more at this idea of objective truth. I mean, the objective experience. Uh, is, should we listen to uh, objective experience or should we listen uh, to the truth as revealed in God's word? I want you to tell me who said this quote, all right? He arose and began to prophesy. When a noise was heard, like the sound of a rushing mighty wind filled the temple, all the congregation simultaneously arose. By the way, don't look ahead and tell me where it comes from. That's not fair. Being moved upon by an invisible power, many began to speak in tongues. Many began to prophesy. Others saw glorious visions, and I beheld that the temple was filled with angels, which... Uh, with fact, I declared to this congregation. The people of the neighborhood came running together, hearing an unusual sound within, and seeing a bright light, a pillar of fire resting on the temple, and they were astonished by what was taking place. Who said that? The writer of Acts? Yeah. Sounds like something that comes from Acts, huh? Who do you think said it? It's not a trick question. It's a diagnosing question. Because many Christians hear that, well, they were speaking in tongues, they were prophesying, there were angels, and this, this, that's all biblical stuff, all stuff in the Bible, right? You want to know who said it? A man said it who says that the one evidence of true faith is speaking in tongues. His name is Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. He said that when they opened... Uh, the name of this temple, the Kirkland Temple, in the 1800s. 
And you know this objective experience that was a validation of salvation in, uh, in these movements? Also, you can find them. Let's get Indonesian here. You can go to cults in Kalimantan. Find the same things. You can go to Hindus in Bali. You can find the same things. Even Wesley saw some of these manifestations in some of his meetings in the 1700s. Uh, and you can find quotes from Wesley where it was the non-Christians who were speaking in tongues and claiming to have all these things. And they asked him to leave his revival meetings. Um, we have to answer the question, honestly, uh, of, of how we should engage this movement. I want to look real quickly at history. <laughs> okay, let's go back as far as we can uh, in history and see what family tree we come from. Uh, let's see how we're related. You read uh, a lot of charismatic guys. Oh, actually, look, I do read uh, some charismatic authors. Uh, and the guy's name, that I, one, one guy that I really like, I think he's actually, uh, he understands the Bible really well. I'm blanking on his name right now. Hopefully he'll come back to me. Uh, but he has, I read uh, his defense of Pentecostalism. And um, what is his name, man? It was actually in the Gospel Coalition. He's in Oklahoma. Uh, and Sam Storm. Uh, is his name, and uh, <laughs> it just came to me, <laughs> hallelujah, uh, Sam Storm, and he actually uses uh, history um, to defend his case on why he's a Pentecostal. He's in the Coalition. Uh, he wrote on the Gospel Coalition, he's not on the board, um, and look, I'm a huge fan of the Gospel Coalition, a huge fan, but they are, uh, he's, not, he's not one of the council members, no, but he, he, he wrote uh, a really, actually, really good blog. So I, I tried to, but he, he, he'll refer to Montanus, uh, the movement, where, where do we see these, this activity in history? Um, we got to move quickly. Uh, Montanism and Gnosticism in the early uh, uh, history of uh, Christianity were two heretical movements where we saw uh, prophecy on the one hand. Montanus said that he was the final prophet um, and that there, after him there would be no more prophecy but the end of the world. Uh, turned out the end of Montanus happened and the world continued. He was a false prophet and Gnosticism is, a, uh, is false teaching. But they had uh, the manifestations of, of, of tongues and prophecy. You can look uh, at uh, Irenaeus and Origen. Both of them were uh, men that we would consider part of our, our family tree. And they said that... Um, the speaking in tongues uh, had ceased, and the signs of the apostle had ceased. Uh, Christendom, John Christendom, uh, referring in a sermon in, for, to 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, also spoke of the cessation, the cessation of these miraculous gifts. Augustine, as well in the 4th century, uh, said that there uh, were signs adapted to the time of the apostles, uh, but the thing, um, the purpose had passed away. Uh, we can jump over the Reformation to Puritans and other revivalists outside of Finney. A guy named John uh, Flavel uh, was a Puritan pastor. Uh, Thomas Watson, John Owen, and I actually have a lot of good stuff from John Owen. If you haven't read John Owen, you need to read him. Uh, but he has a lot of great things to say uh, about the enthusiasts of his day. All of them con condemned what the Pentecostal movement would call the objective uh, experience of speaking in tongues and all of them condemned uh, the, the uh, enthusiastic movement of the prophecy and um, the miracles and the healings that happened uh, saying that they were not of, uh, of 
the, of Scripture and of the Lord. Matthew Henry, in 1712, he was a famous uh, commentator. He says this quote, These, the tongues and other gifts of prophecy, uh, being a sign, have long since ceased. Uh, they've been laid aside, and they have no encouragement to expect uh, the revival of them. On the contrary, uh, they're directed to call the Scriptures uh, for us to study more and more the Word of God, the Word of prophecy. George Whitfield would agree. Charles Spurgeon would agree. You can read those quotes in your notes. I will share with you uh, a quote from Terry Arnold, Terry Arnold and Mike Clayton. They actually have a, a fantastic piece called The Signs, Gifts, in History. They were asked by the Australian Pentecostals to write it. Uh, it's short. It's simple. Look it up. Uh, you'll find a lot of that most recent information from that. But he says, they say, regardless of the reader's or the author's persuasion concerning the continuation uh, or the cessation of the sign gifts, there is no doubt that the teaching for at least 1,800 years was that these extraordinary sign gifts had ceased. Okay? So all the way back, uh, these uh, objective experiences that, that acted as validation to uh, salvation and validation of personal holiness, the history of the church for 1,800 years would say they don't exist. They're not from the Lord. They've stopped. How then are we to think about the birth of the Pentecostal movement? What does Martin Luther say? Sorry, I've, I've, I've moved past my slides here. Uh, let's get to some of the reformers. Uh, Martin Luther would uh, loudly and quickly uh, condemn these uh, John Calvin um, would, uh, he spoke to the Anabaptists and the Libertines who, who had this, uh, uh, the, these tendencies to, to add to their experience. They had all kinds of continuing revelation uh, within their movement. Um, and when asked why John Calvin spoke against the Anabaptists and the Libertines, uh, he said, even when a, a dog barks when his master is assaulted, right? He, he took... Uh, the very signs and wonders, the, the speaking in tongues, and the, uh, he took the, um, the, the miracles and the healings and the, the, all the excitement that's drummed up as an attack against the Lord himself. Um, he called them foolish and vain and false, uh, a substitute for truth. Uh, they were delusions. He called them silly. Uh, he said that they broke the mutual bond of spirit and of word. And um, uh, there's actually a great... Uh, talk that you can listen to online, a guy named Steve Lawson, a good book uh, John MacArthur wrote called Strange Fire. He did a conference on it. Steve Lawson gave a talk on Calvinist charismatics. You can listen to it online. It's got a, a lot of helpful stuff in it. Um, and, but Calvin says things that are a lot more helpful. Uh, from his commentary on Acts 10, 44, uh, Calvin talks about the gift of tongues ceasing in the first century, uh, that there is uh, the kingdom, the spirit of God uh, is in opposition with the fanatics uh, who aim at oracles in hidden revelations without the word. Do you know what that is? That's the dynamic inspiration that we were talking about. So even in Calvin's day, there were people who were saying, yeah, 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 you got your scripture, but I've got this objective experience and God's still speaking. And Calvin did not mix words when he talked about them. In Acts uh, 21, 29, he, he talked, we're going to look at the scripture in a second. Uh, he states that God took away the new revelation in order to testify that the end revelation was, was pre present in Christ. That is, that the gifts of the Spirit uh, of speaking in tongues had ceased. The fullness of what God wanted us to know 
uh, has been given to us. And he would point to Hebrews uh, 1, 1 through 3, um, that the, uh, the prophecies had ceased and were made full in Christ. Uh, he said the same thing about Ro- in Romans 12, 6. Um, and, and you've got to ask a question here. Uh, if you're talking, if you have charismatic friends, which I hope you do, I've got charismatic friends. Uh, if you read charismatic authors, uh, which I hope you do, um, with wisdom and to learn from, um, if not only to, to learn how to more faithfully talk to your charismatic friends, uh, you need to do that. But uh, the question comes up, are you putting the Holy Spirit in a box? Right? You're saying all this stuff that happened in Acts, the, the speaking in tongues and the, uh, the prophesying and the miracles that happened, like you're saying that's not normal for the church anymore, right? Is it not putting the Holy Spirit in a box? And the answer is, uh, yeah, certainly is. But you know what? It's the box the Holy Spirit puts himself in. And when God reveals himself inside a certain framework, I'm not going to take him out because that's how God's been pleased to reveal himself. In Calvin, and this is what I love about Calvin, B.B. Warfield called him the theologian of the Holy Spirit, right? And this is a guy that spoke directly against the objective experience of speaking in tongues, the prophecies, the signs, the miracles, and the wonders that the, what he called the false movements, who were specifically the libertines and the, the radical Anabaptists of his day, he called them attacking God, right? This man is a theologian of the Holy Spirit. Why? Listen to this. Oh, this is great stuff. You ready? Open your Bibles to Acts, because we're getting ready to run through Acts faster than we've run through 2,000 years of church history. In the Institutes, in, uh, one, Book 1, uh, Section 9.3, uh, this is what Calvin says, that the Word of, and the Spirit of God belong inseparably together. Uh, he says that there's a kind of mutual bond, that the Lord has joined together the certainty of His Word and of His Spirit, that the perfect religion of the Word may abide in our minds when the Spirit who causes us to contemplate God's face shines, and that we may in turn embrace the Spirit with no fear of being deceived when we recognize Him in His own image, namely His Word. In Book 2 of the Institutes, he says, This, however, remains certain. The perfect doctrine that God has brought us has made an end to all prophecies. All those, then, who are not content with the gospel, and they patch it with something extraneous to it, they detract from Christ's authority. He's called the theologian of the Holy Spirit because Calvin again and again pushed people back to the Spirit's mode of working, and that's the Word of God. And you know what? When you actually read the book of Acts and read church history, you realize that when Luke wrote it down, he wasn't focusing on the signs and wonders. You know what he focused on? The advancing of the Word of God. And you don't believe me because you haven't been reading the Bible. You've been listening too much to popular Christianity. In Acts 1, open your Bibles, Acts 1, verse 8, the Lord says, Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to come on you in power, that you're going to be my witnesses to where? To where? That's right. Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. In the, the history of the early church, as it spreads throughout to the ends of the earth, uh, is when it goes to this new place, then you see the, the signs and the wonders of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but what you need to note is the centrality of the Word of God. The Spirit is inseparably united to the Word. 
So you circle x18 and you understand that we have a concentric circle paradigm. And the problem is not that we put the Holy Spirit in the box. The problem is that, we, uh, that people have a tendency to minimize the Holy Spirit. Right? We're not really honoring the work of the Spirit when we limit his activity to your personal experience. Right? That's un- Unfortunately, I don't want to burst your bubble, but you know, all of redemptive history is a lot, in the glory of God is a lot bigger than your personal experience of objective criteria for your salvation. That's putting the Holy Spirit in a box. Pentecost was foreseen by the Word of God. Acts 2, uh, 16. Peter says, uh, this was what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Pentecost, uh, what happened, what they experienced was not only a prophecy from the Word of God, but it was a fulfillment of a feast of the people of God that you can read, go back into the roots of it, in the Feast of Weeks back in Leviticus, right? There's this, uh, it is foreseen and anticipated by God's word. Uh, when the church was birthed, look at Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 41, uh, those who received his word, that's Peter's word, the apostles' word, that's God's word, they were all baptized. And that day they were added about 3,000 souls. You jump down to verse uh, 43, 42 and 43, they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. What is that? That's the word of God, verse uh, 43. Uh, and all came upon every soul, uh, and many wonders and signs were being done. By whom? The apostles. That's important. We'll understand why in a second. Uh, If you flip over, you need to underline these verses so you can come back and look at them later so you don't think I'm crazy and you're going to be very humble. Look at chapter 6, verse 7. As uh, the word of God advances, it says, The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples uh, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Uh, When Luke describes it, he summarizes it as the word of God increasing. Look at chapter 8, verse 4. When the persecution happened after Stephen's death, this is the description. Uh, Those who were scattered, that is throughout the empire, uh, went about preaching the word of God. Uh, If you look at chapter 10, verse 44. Uh, You see that while Peter was speaking these things, this is to Cornelius and to his family, uh, speaking the word, the Spirit fell on who? All who were hearing the word of the apostle. You see, the Spirit is inseparably tied to uh, the word. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 24. We're getting to some of my favorite verses here. um, Where it says that the word of God continued to increase and to multiply. Chapter 17, uh, verse 2. You see uh, that Paul was, as custom, was spent his Sabbath day uh, in Thessalonica. What was he doing? He was reasoning with people from the Scriptures. Uh, this, was, uh, this was in evangelism. Uh, Paul was using God's Word. But not only that, look at chapter 19. When he was in Ephesus, uh, verse 10. He was there for two years. So all the residents of Asia, what did they hear him do for two years? Preaching the word of the Lord, both the Jews 
and the Greeks. And if you jump down to chapter verse 20 of this same chapter, you see that Luke describes it as the word of the Lord continuing to increase and prevail mightily. And that's a story of Ephesus where the whole economy of this thriving city was turned upside down. If you look at chapter uh, 28, verse 31, we'll just jump to the end. I'm just giving you my favorite top 10 uh, from the book of Acts. But chapter 28, 31 uh, it says that uh, he lived there. Uh, he was proclaiming that the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And we say, well, what was he teaching about the kingdom of God? And you look at Second uh, Timothy uh, chapter two, uh, verse nine, and you see what this is. I love this verse. Uh, he says. He's writing from this same prison. He says, For which I am suffering, I am bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. It's unhindered, right? So the whole theme of the book of Acts from the beginning to the end is the word of God, the advancing of the word of God, the centrality of the word of God, the power of the word of God, and the Holy Spirit chooses as a medium uh, the apostles and the word that they taught and the word of God uh, that went forward. So what's the sign then of a spirit-filled church? This is what Calvin says, my question. Those who reject Scripture imagine that they have some particular way of penetrating to God. They are deemed not so much under the influence uh, of error, they are deemed not so much under the influence of error as madness. For certain giddy men have lately appeared who, while they make a great display of the superiority of the Spirit, they reject all reading of the Scriptures themselves. And they deride the simplicity of those who only delight in what they call the dead and deadly letter. Isaiah shows that under the reign of Christ, the true and full felicity of the new church will consist in their being ruled not less by the Word than by the Spirit of God. Hence, we infer that these miscreants are guilty of fearful sacrilege in tearing asunder what the prophet joins in indissoluble union, that the office of the Spirit promised to us is not uh, to form new and unheard of revelations or to coin a new form of doctrine, but by which we may be led away from received the doctrine of the gospel, but to seal our minds the very doctrine with which the gospel recommends. I, uh, uh, I'm going to Monado in just a little while, literally a couple hours. I'm getting on a plane. We've got a service that we do there every, every Sunday. Uh, we have a few hundred folks that come. Uh, as you know, Monado is a historically Christian city in Indonesia, a lot of dead churches. Uh, I was invited after our service up there one time to um, come to uh, a joint service of several of the most lively churches in the city, uh, Pentecostal churches. I went because of the invitation. I knew the head guy. He's a friend of mine uh, or a guy that I know. Uh, anyway, so I go to this, and uh, I'm sitting in this service, and the whole time we're in there, the name of Jesus is never praised. Uh, they praise the Holy Spirit. They praise the experience. They uh, praise the people who are leading. They actually took break in the service to celebrate a couple of people, and they did a skit and all this. Uh, and when the preacher got up there, he never opened the Word of God. Uh, he only told stories about the Word of God. Uh, and at the end, uh, my friend said, Have you been to a service where the Spirit is moving that much? And I thought, No. The Spirit was not moving at all. Like, you, you think you're reviving dead churches in Monado by having this experience-based, self-focused 
service that doesn't even open the Word of God, like that couldn't be further from biblical authority. It couldn't be further from uh, what God has designed for His Spirit to actually work through. And friends, let me tell you, if you get nothing out of this conversation today, and I know I need to finish here, and I'm going to, I'm about 15 minutes, maybe 20. But that is, you will find the life that you need, the revival that you need, the power that you need, the strength that you need, the direction that you need, the hope that you need, the security that you need, the food that you need, the status that you need, the security that you need, in the Word of God. God has spoken to you in His Word. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. The psalmist says it's 19. It is more valuable than the finest gold. Jesus says, quoting the word himself, you don't even live by bread alone, but by every word, of the, every, every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's better than food. It's true. If you don't get anything, get it out of that. So I'm a cessationist. I believe that the apostolic signs have ceased. And let me talk to you about why I think that's a biblical argument. And you, if you don't know Pentecostals and Charismatics in this country, then this might seem judgmental, but it's not. Okay? This is, this is what they'll tell you, that they're actually still going on, that God is actually still revealing, God's actually still working, and that these apostolic signs, oh man, I've got so little time. We're gonna, they, they continue today. Uh, let me, I know, I'm going to. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the permission. I'm not even to the good stuff yet. All right. So here's what ceased. Uh, signs and wonders that are reserved, and you've got to understand this from a biblical perspective. Signs and wonders that are reserved to authenticate direct spokesmen of God and that validate the word of God through those spokesmen. Okay? Now, we won't do this, but if you go back and read in Exodus... You remember the signs that Moses had so that uh, God's people would believe that they were God's spokesmen. What were they? The rod turned to a snake, yeah. His hand turned to leprosy, and then he spoke to uh, uh, the Pharaoh and turned the water. But all these signs were intended to validate that he was the spokesman of God, right? And that the word he spoke was actually from God. And this is the same. Let's go to 2 Kings real quick because it's so clear here. 1 Kings, you can go there too. It's really all over the place, but I'll take Tatiana's advice, which Tazar needs to do more, and we'll go to 1 Kings. Uh, just kidding. Just kidding. All right. <laughs> I like amens. Um, uh, chapter 17, uh, Elijah has just raised the widow's son. Um, uh, and it's a, it's a beautiful story that actually Jesus uh, refers to. Uh, the widow, widow of Zarephath. He refers to it in Luke 4. But look here uh, in, in verse 23. Um, Elijah took the child. He brought him down from the upper chamber into the house. And he delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. Now look. He just raised this woman's son from the dead. And what does she say? The woman said to Elijah, now I know that you're a man of God. And that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. That is why the kid was raised from the dead. Not so that Elijah could have this huge healing movement and go around and have his own ministry, but so that he could be validated as a prophet of God 
and that the word that he spoke was understood to be the word of God. We see this if we go to uh, Jesus in, in Mark chapter 2. You remember when he uh, had the paralytic brought to him? And they came to the roof. You remember the story? Yeah? And all the, all the Pharisees are looking at him. And, and what does Jesus say? Jesus says, hey, look, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, what? No one can forgive sins but God alone. And what does he do? So that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say, rise. And he did. The miracle validated who he was, God himself, in his words, in his power. We already saw this in Acts chapter 2. It was the apostles doing the signs and wonders. Why? To validate them as the men of God, to validate their message. And now go to Hebrews chapter 2. Man, I love teaching this stuff. Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. What does the Bible say? Uh, if we declare, uh, so we'll start at the beginning, sorry. Uh, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, this is referring to the apostles. But what is important about this? The writer of Hebrews is referring to it in past tense. Gave it to these men. Done. Finished. So, quickly, how do we understand this from, how does this fit into our understanding of spiritual gifts? Okay? I'm saying that the apostolic gifts that were designed to authenticate the men of God and the message of God through them, those have ceased. This comes from an article from John Frame and Vern Porthris. Okay? It's actually an interesting article where they advocate for the continuation of these gifts from an understanding from an infallible perspective. Uh, I find the diagram far more helpful than the actual article. But he puts uh, four, they put four different categories of spiritual gifts. Uh, one is the messianic category. Jesus had all the spiritual gifts. Nobody has all the gifts that Jesus had. Scripture mentions, mentions 19 different spiritual gifts. Nobody has all of them except Jesus. But all of you have some of them. And it's important that you know uh, who you have and what you have. The second are these apostolic gifts. The apostolic gifts have stopped according to Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. These are the ones that we looked at in Acts chapter 2, verse 41 through 45. Uh, and uh, we read about them in 1 Corinthians. We'll look at them in a second. But these gifts have ceased. They were reserved for Jesus and reserved for the apostles. And I have uh, cessationist friends who, I mean, uh, continuationist friends. They believe that all these gifts and signs are still happening. And, and look, from a different family... I'm not saying they're not happening. I'm just questioning whether or not they're from the Lord. That's what, that's what history, our Reformed faith, has done. Right? That's what, throughout history, that's what we've done. Um, and so, I'm sorry if you don't have the gifts of the apostles, if that upsets you. You're not an apostle. Those, those, the apostles are done. You don't have the gifts of Jesus. I'm sorry. You're not Jesus. But there are two other levels of gifts. Uh, level three 
would be pastors, teachers, elders, deacons. These are special gifts within the church. All of these are under the divine authority, the biblical authority of the word. And then uh, you have general gifts. Every believer has gifts. And uh, Anthony Holcomb has a great uh, line when talking about this. He says, every Christian has gifts uh, which are important for the body of believers. The term charismatic, therefore, ought not to be applied only to Pentecostals or Neo-Pentecostal movement. The entire church of God is charismatic. It is a biblical term. Uh, you can read about the spiritual gifts in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. Uh, Paul says in Romans 4 that the gifts are to be used for the building up of the body uh, of Christ and for works of ministry. And you need to understand uh, the gifts uh, that God has given you. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10 uh, that we're called to steward the gifts that God's entrusted to us. Uh, but the fact that you have spiritual gifts uh, doesn't mean that all of the spiritual gifts that are mentioned in Scripture uh, still exist. Um, I saw this online. I've got a friend that sends me these hilarious things. Tim Tebow, you know, I, I know baseball here, but uh, Tim Tebow is a football player. He went to play baseball. He's a Christian. And the headline says that he's called out on strikes. He turns and he heals the umpire of blindness. I think that's funny. Uh, the, the question of the continuation of gifts in Scripture, if you read... Um, First uh, uh, Corinthians 12 through 14, uh, you actually see Paul talking about these spiritual gifts of prophecy, spiritual gifts of healing, spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues. And you have to ask, uh, well, it sure looks like uh, that Paul is telling us, he says, seek the higher gifts. I mean, uh, and it, when you read the verses, it sure looks like the scripture in and of itself would say that these gifts actually still exist. Um, and that's a good question. And it's one uh, that we need to interrogate. We need to answer. We don't have time. I wanted to walk through some of these verses. Uh, but if you, if you understand uh, the nature of, of, of Scripture being written, then you can read actually in Acts and see that uh, the Paul on one of his early missionary journeys uh, planted the church in Corinth. Um, it was an early church. And the gifts of healing that he mentions in 1 Corinthians 12, go read it, 13 and 14, uh, the gifts of miracles, and the gifts of prophecy. Uh, do these still exist? Well, let's look at some of the older letters, right? Um, go to James 5. Does healing exist there? Absolutely. Absolutely. But how? Well, it, 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 he commands the elders of the church to go pray for people who need healing. And he refers back to Elijah that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So there is a common and ordinary way that God does extraordinary things. Miracles still happen. But what do we define as a miracle? My favorite college football team, which means nothing here, is the Tennessee Volunteers. They won two weeks ago off a uh, Hail Mary play, this unbelievable pass. Uh, and afterwards, the reporter came up to the coach and said, Oh, it was a miracle that you all won. How does it fail to have a miracle win? The coach said, What a miracle? We practice that play every week, just in case we need it. We executed our plan. <laughs> What's a miracle, right? Uh, do, do healings and miracles, does God still invade in history? Absolutely. But not in a way that's going to make me uh, validate this, ex, this uh, subjective truth, where I'm going to give you a new word of God, where I'm going to enable you to have this personal experience with the Holy Spirit in a way that gives you some sort of continued revelation that's divorced from, separated from, and antagonistic against the revealed Word of God in Scripture. So yes, God still works. And I have a great story that I want to tell you of a woman I know 
in, in uh, East Africa named Baina that the first time I met her, she was unable to walk from a stroke. We prayed for her fervently, and the next time I saw her, she was dancing. I've seen the lame walk. But you know what Baina didn't do? Baina didn't start jumping and celebrating and say, now I'm a prophetess, listen to the word of God through me. She didn't do that. She gave all glory to God. The Bible doesn't say that uh, miracles have stopped. God still works in mighty ways. In fact, if you've got friends who are sick with cancer, you better be praying that God heals them. But you better know something. That if God doesn't heal them, it doesn't mean that God's mad or they weren't holy enough or they weren't righteous enough, right? Because in Christ, we know through his word that there will be a place with no more sickness, no more death, no more suffering, right? This is the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21 and 22. That's what God's word says. So we live in an already reality of this kingdom where Jesus does reign, but we don't have an over-realized eschatology where everything we name and everything we claim and every demon we drive out goes. There's still brokenness, there's still sin, there's still, there's still death. Yeah? And that doesn't fit into the, uh, a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about in a second. But, okay, so miracles and healing, God still does it. You might not hear a cessationist say that, James says that we should pray for healing in the church. There's just an ordinary way in design that God does it. But you know what else the Bible says? One of the last verses in Revelation 22, that no one should add any prophecy, any teaching to Scripture. It's closed. And if you do, you're going to have a curse upon you. So when you look at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, through the lens of the rest of Scripture, then you see that Scripture actually answers the question itself. It was an early church that demonstrated apostolic gifts. It was a very dysfunctional church. (laughs) People try to use the Corinthian church as a model. I say, please don't do that. They're sleeping with each other. They're sleeping with each other's parents and kids and everything else. That was very dysfunctional. That's why Paul wrote the letter. It's not a sign of a healthy church, that's for sure. But it was an early congregation, early church, and the the signs that were mentioned in Scripture disappear by the end of Scripture. In the sense that they're intended to validate the apostle and the message of the apostle. So this leads us to the question of what, oh, we have to get some biblical perspective. (laughs) I'm not done here. Let me run through these. Holy cow. It's the last time I listened to Taser when he says I got two hours. <laughs> Here's what you need to know. All right? You know, when Moses was doing his signs um, to validate that he was a man of God and spoke the word of God, you know who else did it? The magicians. They were false signs, they were false wonders done by people who didn't have the calling of God and the word of God. Uh, Jesus warned of false Christs that would have these miraculous signs. And miraculous wonders, and so did so did Paul, so did Peter. Uh, in Second Peter, I think what I talked to some of my student leaders about uh, yesterday uh, was this idea of Second Peter two one through three, right? That they secretly come in and they uh, make merchandise, they make profit, they use God's sheep uh, with they have destructive heresies. Um, we know that in Hebrews one verses one through three that the fullness of God's revelation is Christ. And anything that goes beyond that is anti-biblical and really dishonoring to the Lord. 
Uh, tongues, biblically, I would argue it's known languages. Go back to the story of the Sousa Street Revival. Not known languages. It was all Babel. No one understood it. We've got to be able to really examine that uh, and what it is. And I would, I would go back to Acts 2 <laughs> uh, for that, proof of that, but other places in Scripture as you see. Here's what you need to pay attention to. In every place where signs and wonders are mentioned uh, by Christ, it's in line with end times uh, events that there would be lying and false signs and wonders. Uh, you also see that in 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 13. Uh, a generation that wants signs and wonders, uh, Jesus calls an evil generation. So, Scripture does say a lot more about this than I think uh, many of us are, are actually comfortable with. Uh, let me jump through what you need to be aware of. You can read the quote by, uh, I want to give you three things that, that you need to be very uh, concerned with. This is a picture of a guy named Oral Roberts, and you want to know a fantastic story um, of just crazy, dynamic revelation, then read the story about the hospitals that he started in Oklahoma. All right? Just Google them. It's unbelievable, uh, but it actually happened. The first thing that we need to be aware of is what we call, what I've called subjective revelation, that we prioritize the objective experience, we prioritize the personal encounter, we prioritize the personal word, the personal uh, uh, touch, uh, the second baptism, so much so uh, that revelation is uh, subjective. Now, you can read this quote from a great book uh, by Walter Chantry called Signs of the Apostles. Uh, I'm going to read you this uh, quote at the bottom uh, by somebody else, um, just for the sake of time. Uh, he says, Neo-Pentecostals have a serious flaw, and it's existential authority base. That is the dynamic inspiration. And it's uncritical stress on the continuative gifts with a deep implication in the realms of canonicity and of revelation, that is, threatening scripture itself, uh, with elitist prophets, etc. A premium, listen, is placed on feeling. That is the hermeneutic of our age, with the complementary neglect of propositional truth. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great line. You know, if you're a communicator writer, you've got to appreciate that line. Let me read it again. A premium is placed on feeling the hermeneutic of our age with the complementary neglect of propositional truth. The individual becomes the source of authority in the leap to truth. That's a powerful quote. Uh, and I think it's reinforced by what I've already said. Um, this priority of person, of individual, and your experience actually negates the truth of God and prioritizes your experience and your feelings. But when this happens, this leads to something that's really dangerous too. Uh, there's a subtle shift of worldview symbols. So the first thing that you need to be aware of is this uh, subjective revelation, the dynamic inspiration that we've talked about. Um, you have to question experience in light of the standard and what is sufficient. And I've got a great example of that that I don't have time to share. But the second thing is this subtle shift in symbols. Now, symbols are what give worldview meaning. Symbols are what give a, a worldview uh, substance. Um, and the key, most key symbol of the Christian worldview is what? The cross, right? Central. And we'll look at that in a second. 
Joel Osteen, uh, oh, first uh, Paul says in, in 2 Timothy, verse, chapter 4, verse 4 through 3, he said, a time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine. That is, they don't want truth. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So Joel Olstein, uh, he doesn't like to use the word sinner. He doesn't use the word sinner. Why? Because he wants people to feel good about themselves. He says, I don't use it. Well, I never thought about it, but I probably don't. Most people already know they're doing wrong. When I get them to church, I want to tell them that you can change. There can be a difference in your life. So, so don't go down that road of condemning, right? Who's at the center of that? Is it God's word? That, you know, occasionally uses the word of sin. Is it God's word that, you know, occasionally uses the word condemnation? Or is it the individual in their experience? So Joel Olstein is actually, and I know I'm getting close to some idols here, is actually a mentor to uh, the, the group of people that's shaping the Pentecostal movement in the future. The present movement of Pentecostal. And you know who that group is? It's a band called Hillsong. And Hillsong has some great music. I listen to some of their music. There was a Hillsong song playing when I came in just a moment ago. Okay? So I'm not condemning all of Hillsong's music, but I want to challenge people to listen to the subtle redefinition of symbols. And I have a song that we don't have time to listen to. You can listen to it uh, later. Um, it's called, what's the song called? Uh, there's, there's at the cross, but there's two at the cross that yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, it's a subtle redefinition, right? So let, let's talk about redefinition of symbols. What is this right here? Rainbow. It's a rainbow. Oh, ten years ago, what did this symbolize? God's covenant with Noah. Now, what does a rainbow symbolize? LGBT. It's a redefinition of a symbol that robs the significance and the authority and the message that it carries. All right, the same thing's happening to the cross. Okay? We're, there's a subtle shift when we don't have truth. I know you're looking at your phone. We're almost done. We'll take questions in three minutes. Okay? When you listen to the songs that Hillsong writes, not the hymns that they cover, you hear things that are true about the cross. But you take away sin, you take away people, well, I don't want you to feel bad, I don't want you to feel condemned. Then you turn the cross into a place of blessing. Sin becomes something that's just something you've done wrong. I lay my whole self down. Rid me of myself. I belong to you, right? It's not rid me of my sin. There is no sin, so there's no judgment. So there's no good news. There's no atonement for sin. There's no propitiation. You're removing, this is Marcionism. You're removing the anger of God at sin in redefining the character of God as a just God. And I have so much that I want to go into there, but I can't. There's no substitution. And in the end, you know what there is? No grace. And when you subtly shift and change the worldviews, uh, the symbols of a worldview, you're changing absolutely everything. Uh, there's a fantastic article about this, a, a guy 
uh, named Nathan Walter did a study from within the Hillsong movement, which was actually founded by a guy who was actively a pedophile. Um, it's very, that's very public. They've repented of that. Uh, it comes from a very dark place uh, as uh, the same thing, actually, uh, from, um, I'm blanking on the guy's name, uh, that had the first, uh, in, 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 in Kansas, that guy, uh, how can I, I'm giving a seminar on Pentecostals and I can't remember this guy's name. I've been talking too long. Um, but there's all kinds of stories about his own personal uh, struggle with uh, adultery and infidelity as well. Uh, so you have the subtle shift of worldviews, and what happens uh, is you have a culture that is based on experience, uh, where life coaching um, is what is relevant, and you have this self-focus where everybody's looking for their best life now. Uh, standing on the doorstep of our chapel at our university and then, and then moving over to uh, the building where our church is, I can see a church that meets every week. I tell students actively not to go there. Uh, the guy who leads that church doesn't like to call himself a pastor. He doesn't like to preach God's word. He calls himself a life coach. And what happens is uh, we have a, 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 a movement that's based on experience, that's uh, painted in tremendous worship, uh, which, which can be great, uh, but it's more focused on feelings than, than it is uh, forgiveness. And uh, your best life now, the overrealized eschatology, is proof texted with Scripture. It's a twist of word, uh, of the Word of God. Um, and it leads to a, a total rejection. Um, of God's word if you follow it all the way. Uh, and I have a closing illustration about a guy who actually prophesied against me uh, and didn't use God's word, but he uses what he called Ryan's revelations. Um, and one of his revelations was how I was going to um, ruin the movement of God uh, out where I work. And I have ruined some things, and I don't think it was a movement of God. Um, and Ryan, Ryan is not here. Oddly enough, Ryan went to uh, Hillsong Seminary. Um, to study in Australia. It's true. Um, again, I like a lot of Hillsong's music, but anytime you're messing with subtly shifting symbols of the worldview, uh, you've got to be dangerous. It all goes back to um, what I would say is a whole nother trunk of a tree, not part of the same family tree. Uh, and we, as Reformed Christians, must always go back to Scripture and go back to God's Word um, in allow the Spirit of God to work through the Word of God, uh, that we can be top priority, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, conformed more to the image of God. God's will for your life is your sanctification, period. God's will for your life is not your experience. And you know what? Your sanctification may involve suffering. Let me say this. Let me rechange that. Your sanctification will involve suffering. All right? Uh, we have uh, a few minutes for questions. Any questions? Um, Mitchell, so how, I mean, I'm sure as Christians we've all experienced experiences with the Holy Spirit, if for lack of a better word, where we felt the Spirit leading us somewhere or we felt, um, I mean, part of my story is like I felt like the Holy Spirit was calling me to befriend someone because yeah. I had been praying for, an, yeah. And so how would we talk about that without seeming charismatic? Does that make sense? Yeah, so we want to be as biblical as possible, right? The Holy Spirit is our comforter. The Holy Spirit is our guide. Uh, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Um, and that there's one, that it, when we discern God's will for our life, uh, there, the internal call that we have uh, is significant. It's very real. God's a personal God. And maybe that's... Uh, um, something you feel for relationships, maybe it's something you feel 
in prayer when you're praying, uh, but that's never alone. When we're discerning God's will, it's never just my feeling, right? Because it could be the pizza that I had for lunch. Uh, we also always want to align, well, I, I feel called to do something. Is it in line with God's word? Uh, is it in line with counsel, wisdom that we're getting from other people? And so really, when we're discerning God's will, um, we want to have a, a helpful grid. Uh, and part of that is um, the spirit that is alive in us. And at no place did I ever say the Holy Spirit's not active and working. He is. But he's always active and working. And I actually met a guy. Uh, <laughs> that would be very, I mean, he, he called himself an apostle to India and told me a story about how he had to kill somebody once in, in, for his defense. And I, well, pretty sure that, you know, if you're an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not killing anybody in self-defense. Because that's against God's law, right? That's, that's, that's not accurate. So we have to have God's word as a, as, a, as a discernment and a guide for a course. Your friend doesn't know the Lord. The Spirit moves you to go talk to him. Yeah, that's clearly in God's word. And any of your pastor or anybody else, your husband, is going to give you that counsel to go do it, right? So clearly we run through that corridor. But there is a real danger for anybody that prioritizes that little nudging of the Spirit without any sense of alignment with Scripture, any sense of accountability, or any prayer. Does that make sense? So it's, I want to affirm that, but I want to broaden it. Yeah? Hey, Mitchell. So uh, if at the heart of the charismatic movement is a very inaccurate view of God's Word, why do you think uh, they're now one of the biggest church as a demographic, as an overall, globally speaking? What do you think is their pull? How come so many people flock and run to their churches? And yeah, their I think... Uh, well, I, I have a slide that you can look at in your notes about the neo, the new, the the modern and the future charismatic movement, their formula, and, and they have they've got it down. Uh, it's a great worship experience. They they're not going to offend you. There is a, they have a strong sense of community, and they actually have a, a, a high level of activism, right? So they're doing things socially that make you feel pretty good about yourself. Um, so I, I believe that uh, when, when a movement is birthed out of self-centeredness, you're not only going to reject uh, the authority of God's word, um, and uh, you're, you're going to also um, seek to feel good uh, in every area. And, and they've, I think people are flocking there uh, because of that. And the movement is largely among the poor who need hope, uh, among the poor. Uh, that want to have the kingdom of God now, right? Among the poor who are looking uh, for help and who are looking for relief. Um, and you know what? That's You look at uh, Seymour. He was marginalized. He was poor, an African-American pastor in that day, sitting on the outside, not even allowed in the room to hear the, uh, uh, the guy talk. I mean, it came from a marginalized place. Um, and so I think that they've effectively uh, done it and uh, packaged their... The work and look. Um, I, I had a guy I talked to. Uh, I love talking to people who are writers and leaders, and he was writing about the church growth in Indonesia, um, and he, he was like, "It's exploding over here," and it is. Like, I mean, the, the church is really exploding over here, uh, and he's writing about um, the church advancing. He's writing this really thick book. It's going to be published in the states, and I asked him. I said. Well, what is your standard for a church? He's like, what do you mean? What's my standard? I said, well, uh, what, the, what are the marks of a church? 
He said, anybody that calls on the name of Jesus, man, come on. I said, Mormons? Mormons are exploding over here. Are they included in your data? He was like, well, I hadn't thought about that. I was like, what about Jehovah's Witnesses? What about non-born-again Catholics, right? And so my point in, in saying that is that we got to know what the church is biblically. And that's a whole other talk. I hope you've actually had it. But there's, there is a clear mark of the church. Um, and Bavink would say that there's only one. It's the word of God, and everything comes out of that. Uh, some Reformed Baptists would say there's nine marks of the church. Um, but we have to know what the church is. So the data, in my opinion, uh, the, if you look at the quote that I started with in that slide, it ends with those that call themselves Christians, right? They're not necessarily Christians. Just because you've had an experience with holy oil uh, and you used to be a Muslim and now you worship God in a church, I'm sorry, it doesn't make you a Christian because I'm not convinced that church is a church. That's harsh, but I think it's very biblical. The Bible has very hard things to say about people who twist the truth. And this is why I'll go back to where I started. I really hope that when we talk to leaders of these movements, we're very clear, very bold, very honest. But when we're talking to friends of ours that are in these churches, friends of ours that are, um, they don't understand what it really means to be saved. I've got students where I've actually taught on the atonement, and they've come up to me afterwards. They say, sir, I think we misunderstood you. Oh, what, what, what do you mean? They said, well, you said that when Jesus died, he paid for all of our sins. I say, yeah. And I gave you all those Bible verses. And they say, I say, well, what's the problem? I don't understand. It's a Christian university, right? So well, that's not what my church teaches. What does your church teach? Our church teaches that you've got to be holy so that God will forgive you. And you've got to work towards that. Guess what that is? That's rooted in the Methodism of the 1700s. It's stoked by the revivalism of the 1800s, right? It's baptized in the name of Pentecostalism in the 1900s. And it's given birth to what I would tell them is a false church. And when I talk to them, I don't condemn them. I don't yell at them. I try to love them. And I say, you need to really look at what God's word says and talk to your pastor. Ask what your pastor really believes. What's the statement of faith? What do they really believe? And we compassionately and gently care for people who are very deceived. All right, sorry, long answer. But I think I got your question, yeah. Got time for a couple more. I'm sorry I got to get to a flight. Um, my question is, um, one, of the, one of the most popular uh, charismatic churches in Indonesia, there's a period of time, I think a few years ago, where they really focus on a lot of miracle movement. Yeah. And, um, I, and I used to come from that church, actually. And um, I remember watching, actually, a, in one of the services, they, uh, it was during a Christmas service, they actually did kind of an open, um, like a field where, you know, everyone who wants to be healed, yada, 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 be there. And then there was a period where... Did they know, say yada, like, yada, yada? No. <laughs> I was going to say. They yeah. said more, more stuff. <laughs> Um, and then towards the end, you know, like w after that happened, and then they asked people to come up, and they also had videos of like past, previous miracles yeah. that happened, and um, I I th I genuinely think that uh, it was a genuine miracle, and I thought they were being genuine, and it really happened. Um, and the thing is, I no longer go to the church because of because I think like what was mentioned, a lot of the emphasis has been more about the self rather than the word. 
uh, and, and God and things like that. The Lord of the Word, yes. Yeah. So, but then what I still wonder is that why, if it's not, if they have somehow, if they have shifted, or I believe that they have shifted the focus from uh, God to the self and that it's no longer about Jesus, but why is it that the work of miracle is still very powerful? It's very it powerful. Seems, yeah. Yeah. Well, and look, Jesus, that's the reason I wanted to point to those verses. When he talks about miracles being done by leaders, he's talking about false prophets, right? Um, and I would argue that the majority of those miracles, if you really fall, follow up on it's easy to edit something and get testimonies. If you really follow up on them, they're, most of them didn't really happen. It's not saying all of them didn't happen, okay? Um, so I would question, 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 question. Doesn't mean I don't believe, I've told you, I believe God still works miracles, all that stuff. Um, but yes, miracles, false miracles can happen. Period. False teachers can do miracles. Well, I mean, and this is another topic you need to cover. Uh, but you do know that when God's working, there is an enemy that wants to work just as hard, right? And the enemy wants to deceive. The first temptation that the enemy gave was a question. Did God really say? Ah, look at the fruit. Look at your desire. Go with that feeling. Forget what God says. The enemy wants to twist the truth. The enemy wants to divide, which is essential why we've got to be loving in our engagement of this, because there are brothers and sisters in the charismatic movement. By God's grace, yeah, and there is there are dark powers. Absolutely, spiritual warfare is real. All right. Any other questions? There's. Uh, you, can, you can email me. I'll, I'd love to uh, talk more about this, um, but. Uh, I want to thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for this work, and um, uh, we'll try to put this in a, in, a, in a more condensed way, and maybe into a document form or something to try to get to you. But you have all the slides, all the quotes. Uh, I can get you all the resources, um, and uh, I want to thank you for the opportunity to do this. So thanks for the invitation, Tazar. I've known Tazar for a long time, uh, a long time. Tazar and Tatiana for a long, long time. <laughs> And I love what God's doing here. Uh, I'm Jackie, and I've known each other for a long time as well. Um, but uh, Tazar invited me, and Gray invited me, so I'm thanking them in particular. Um, and uh, just there is, you need to know this too, uh, this group, the gathering, uh, is significant. And they're, they're having a lot of ripple effects in the city you may not be aware of. I was telling Stephen one uh, before we started. Um, but there is a revival of Reformed faith happening uh, in the world um, that is larger than what was going on during the Reformation. <laughs> it's true. And, um, and you are a part of that. Yeah, praise the Lord for that. But that's because we're not Reformed first. We're biblical. We're, we're followers of Christ, right? It just happens to be the, the best framework for understanding and interpreting and applying Scripture. So thank you for the opportunity. Um, can I pray for us? Sure. Is that all right? Yeah. Is that on the agenda schedule? I feel led by the Spirit. Right. Yeah. You know, the only way we can extend today's uh, topic is if we, if we prove him wrong. We pray, 
and then he gets to Manado straight away. I pray that I'll make my flight. It'll be a miracle, or it'll be good driving. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are active, and that you are working, that you are alive, and that we are your people with your spirit. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your work. Uh, we thank you for mystery. We thank you for uh, the fact that we don't understand everything. We thank you for our own limitations. We thank you for the opportunity uh, to participate uh, in your people, your body, because of your work. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Uh, we thank you for the reality that those who have faith in you, you've, rede- you've ripped from the domain of darkness, you've transferred in the kingdom of your beloved Son. We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign and that you are uh, uh, over all of history. We thank you, Lord, that you are not surprised, uh, you are not uh, caught off guard, uh, that you are not so busy with uh, what's going on in Syria, uh, that you aren't paying attention uh, to your, the work of, uh, of the church in Indonesia. Uh, you're working in it and through it. Lord, I beg you uh, that you would raise in us, in this place, so these people, uh, more of a hunger and a thirst uh, for your word and your work, that we'd be more and more centered on Christ alone, that would be more and more built on your word alone, that we would more and more realize that we are saved not by our choice, not by our effort, not by our desire, but by your mercy and your grace alone, that your people here would be protected from the enemy that wants to deceive and devour, that the false teachers that Paul describes in Acts 20, that wolves that come into the flock that want to devour and destroy, that they would be exposed and removed, and that we would be Uh, purged, that we would be made holy, that we would be set apart by your spirit and for your glory. And we know, Lord, that your spirit uh, blows where it pleases. And we do ask for a fresh wind, that you would breathe life in us. And we know that that would be reflected by a revival of the hunger for your word, a revival in the centering of your word in all of our life, all of our deeds, all of our actions, all of our thoughts that we would truly love your word more than the sweetest things of this world, that we would truly love your word more than our paycheck, more than our status, more than our comfort, more than our ease, more than our experience, more than our feelings, that we would love knowing you more fully through your revelation, know, know you and what you've done in the person of Jesus Christ, and that we would know ourselves in and through that, that we might serve you more faithfully. Lord, revive us, we pray. Lord, we thank you for this group, and I ask that you'd bless them, you'd set them apart, uh, you would help them uh, more and more uh, to grow deeper in their knowledge and understanding of who you are and what you've done for them, that you might use them. We thank you and pray for your blessing on the gathering. Lord, we thank you that you hear our prayers, and even as we pray all these things for your bride here, we know that we are in the largest Muslim country in the world, that there is a greater deception around us, even greater than the, the twists of truth in the church, that there are literally hundreds and millions of uh, people who believe a completely false religion, the greatest twist of the truth. So, Father, I pray that you would use your bride not only to set us apart, but to reach those that are in darkness. That you would give us not only relationships with uh, charismatics, but 
with Muslims and with Buddhists and with Hindus. For Lord, we know that you are, have the heart of a shepherd, and that's not only to guard, but it's to gather. So I pray for this place and this group that they would be relentlessly focused on that as they are relentlessly focused on knowing you through your word. Father, we thank you, and I pray that you would just strip away all the stuff that was of me in this talk, all of the dressings and personal perspective that isn't the substance of your word um, and what has actually happened in history. Lord, I pray that you would um, just bear harvest of righteousness from your word in and through this time. We thank you and pray for your mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. All right, guys, uh, let's get a hand to Brother Mitchell Moore. All right, so today is the last uh, session that we have, but I feel that um, what we did today, actually, I, um, <laughs> personally, I was in the charismatic church for six years, all right? I've witnessed firsthand what happened, um, how they do it, what, uh, what are the things that happened, and there was, there's one thing that I can say uh, to you guys here, and it's this. I would have loved to hear what I just heard when I was in the charismatic church. Sure, I would be in the seat, twisting, turning, you know, uh, not liking what I hear, but being presented with the word of God, I think, uh, would have helped me a lot to get out of what I, um, what I believed last time. So I don't know. Um, if there's an opportunity, I think we could do something like this again. Um, and when we do that, I uh, think let's invite more people to, to come, people who we know would be blessed, and even sometimes people whom we know would not want, like to hear what will be said, but need to hear it anyway. All right, so with that, um, God bless all of you. And uh, again, let's give another hand of applause to Reverend Mike. I'm sorry, you have announcements? No? All right, okay. Guys, we, it's, we're closing. <laughs>